This message by Bruce Ware, titled "Beholding the Glory of God's Salvation," is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the third main session at our 2004 Worship God Conference. Dr. Ware is an author, senior associate dean of the Master of Divinity program, and associate dean of theology and tradition at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Have you seen a picture of God that has convinced you that it's not about us? Amen. Well, it's not only not about us; it is not of us; it is not from us, and it is not because of us. It is all because of, from, of, about God. And His gracious kindness to work in us, through us, to redound to His glory. You remember Romans eleven thirty six, where Paul summarizes the the gospel that he has presented in that book up to that point in chapters one through eleven, and he summarizes it in that last phrase in verse thirty six of Romans eleven. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever, Amen. So it really is all about God. He is a great, great God. Well, this evening we're going to extend the discussion of the glory of God and be looking at the glory of beholding the glory of God's salvation. And as we begin this、uh, this evening, I need to confess to you that there will be a subtext to the message on beholding the glory of God's salvation. And the subtext really presses this question that will be, for, be before us. The question is this: Do we read our Bibles and understand God as we ought in a Trinitarian manner? Do we read our Bibles and understand God as we ought in a Trinitarian manner? And may I propose to you this thesis for this evening: Beholding the glory of God in salvation necessarily involves understanding and appreciating the respective roles of the triune persons of the Godhead in securing our salvation. I'll say that again. Beholding the glory of God in salvation necessarily involves understanding and appreciating. The respective roles of the triune persons of the Godhead in securing our salvation. Now, let me ask you this question: Does the doctrine of the Trinity matter? Does anything really depend upon it? I mean, we hold this in orthodoxy. We, we are we are monotheists. Yes, we believe in one God. Absolutely. But we believe that this one God is one in essence, but three personal, full expressions of this one undivided essence of God. So there is a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit, each equally, fully, simultaneously God. I mean, it's, it's beyond our comprehension, admittedly. But why have we held this doctrine for well, two thousand years, ever since Christ came, that forced the issue upon the church? You know, the, you know, the Jews, the Jews, Old Testament religion is monotheistic, but it is unitarian. It really wasn't until Jesus came and said things like, "Before Abraham was, I am." 
Well, you know the significance of that, isn't it? He's just, he's not just claiming to be, you know, 2,000 years old. That's how old, that's how long before Christ Abraham lived. He's claiming to be the I am of Exodus 3. And so when Jesus comes and claims things like this, and his disciples say things like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wow. We realize our monotheism, our understanding of the one God needs to expand to incorporate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so each is equally God, but each is fully God. We're not talking about God divided into three parts. You know, one-third like you do a pie, three pieces of of a pie. No, this is all one God fully possessed by the Father, by the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Well, we've held this doctrine in the church all these years. Does it matter? Well, let me suggest to you just a couple examples of where, in fact, it does matter as we lead to be thinking about uh, the doctrine of, of salvation. Think of creation for a moment. This came to my mind this morning as Craig was speaking to us about creation. Yes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. But then think John 1. In the beginning, sound familiar? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. John 1.1. In the beginning. You suppose that's accidental? You suppose that just happened? That John just, you know, randomly picked that as the beginning of, of his gospel? No, he's tying it, isn't he, to Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then what? All things came into existence by Him. And apart from Him, nothing that has come into existence has come into existence. Christ is now identified as the one who is the creator. To understand creation, it seems to me we have to understand Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Same thing is true in Colossians 1, where by Him all things are created, whether things in heaven, earth, principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, all things are created by Him and for Him. Well, that's under, if you look in that text in Colossians 1, that's under the work of the Father, that the Father by the Son creates all things. Well, what about the Spirit? Well, interestingly, the Spirit appears in Genesis 1-2, hovering over the waters. The Spirit is there. And in Psalm 33 that Craig referenced this morning, it speaks there of both the Word of God, by which the heavens and the earth were created, and the Spirit, the breath, by which they are created. You've got these two Hebrew words, dabar, for word, and ruach, which is the main Hebrew word used for the Spirit. So here you have the Word and Spirit in that one verse, I think it's verse 6 of Psalm 33, So so we realize, boy, to understand creation, we've got to understand Father, Son, Spirit working together in unity in creating the universe. Or consider the doctrine of prayer and the practice of prayer. To whom are we to address our prayers according to Jesus? Well, he said, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven. You know, we're never told to pray to Jesus. We're never told to pray to the Spirit. Now, I'm not standing here in front of you telling you, you should never do that. I am saying this, that Scripture makes clear that what is normative in our praying is to pray to the Father 
in the name, by the authority, because of the mediate, mediatorial role of the Son in the power of the Spirit. It's summed up beautifully in Ephesians 2.18, where Paul speaks of our access to God. He speaks of it this way, that we come through, through Christ. We both, Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So the Spirit unites us, empowers us to bring our prayers to come into the presence of the Father by the Son, by His authority, by His right. We come in the name of Jesus. And that's why we end our prayers. These aren't just throwaway words at the end of a prayer, are they? In Jesus' name, amen. They mean everything apart from that phrase and what it means. There is no way our prayers can come into the presence of Almighty God. It is only because we come in Jesus' name. We have no right to be there on our own. We come by virtue of our being in Christ. And therefore, we come to the Father boldly. Well, so it is the case with salvation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are necessary for understanding the work of salvation. Let me focus just for illustration, and then, of course, I'm going to expand on this in what's coming this evening. But just focus on the cross itself. Why is it we need Father, Son, and Spirit to account for the cross work of Christ? Well, let's start with Christ. Let's start with the Savior who gave his life as a ransom for sinners. You've got to have, for the cross to work, as it were, you've got to have the God-man. Now, it has to be man for the simple reason that this one comes as the substitute for us. He is the second Adam. He is the son of David who comes to bear our sins in our place. And so it must be a man. But can it be just a man? No, and for reasons I'll explain more later. No, it must be both man, yes, to take our place, but God in order that the value of the offering made is sufficient to pay once for all the sin of the world for, for which he dies. So you have to have, here's my main point, you have to have, as it were, one God. Now, please don't understand this as tritheism, but I, I, I hope you see what I mean here. You have to have one God as united with the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who goes to the cross and bears our sin. Now, is that sufficient? No, it isn't. Because you have to ask this question, how do you get the man, Jesus, to the cross sinless? How does this happen? Well, again, more on this later. It's coming this evening. But I just want you to see a taste of it here. How do you get this man to the cross? And the answer that the Bible gives may be surprising to you. It is not that he is, lives a sinless life, gets to the cross because he is God. Because as God, he resists temptation. As God, he obeys the Father. No, the answer the Bible gives is as a spirit-anointed man. He obeys the Father and goes to the cross. So you need for Christ to get there sinless, to obey the Father to accept the greatest of all challenges, the greatest of all demands upon him, to, to actually accept the call to take on the cross. It requires the Spirit at work in him to empower him 
to, 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 to give him the ability to obey the Father right to the end. So, so we have to have God in Christ. We have to have God the Spirit working in Christ, in his humanity. Is that sufficient? No. We need one more God. We need one more person of the Godhead in order to round this out, don't we? We also need one who sends the Son and who acts as judge of our sin as he imputes, as he, as he charges to Christ our sin and then pays the penalty of that sin and, 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 and proclaims that our sin is forgiven, that his wrath against us is satisfied. We need the Father to be the judge who is then vindicated, satisfied, propitiated is the word used in Romans 3 in order for the cross to be effective. So what do we need for this, for salvation to occur? We need a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. We have to have the Trinity in order for the cross to occur. Yes, the Trinity is necessary then in understanding the cross. Now let me take you to a passage of Scripture to illustrate beautifully, I believe, that the cross, I'm sorry, that the Trinity in fact is necessary in understanding all of our life before the Lord and in particular our salvation. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. It is particularly instructive for three reasons. First, it illustrates how we should read the Bible, particularly the New Testament, through Trinitarian glasses. I hope you'll see this just in this lesson that we'll have right now, that we need to read our Bibles with Trinitarian glasses, that is, looking for markers of the distinctiveness of Father, Son, and Spirit, Also, Ephesians 1 demonstrates that salvation is the work of the triune God. We'll see that in this text. And finally, it focuses on the centrality of the Son in bringing about our glorious salvation. Ephesians 1. Okay, look at at, uh, verse 3 with me and following. Notice the reference, specific references to Father, Son, Spirit. Verse 3. Blessed be... Now notice, not just blessed be God... But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who the Father then has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, I take this phrase to mean, spiritual blessing, to mean every blessing brought to us by the Spirit. So I think this is a reference to the work of the Spirit in our salvation. So you have all three in verse 3, Father, Son, and Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing brought by the Spirit in heavenly places in Christ. So all of the blessings come to us in Christ. And you'll see through this whole refrain here that Christ is emphasized. Everything that we have comes in Christ, but mediated to us by the Spirit, blessed by the Father. The Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit, brings to us the blessings of salvation. Well, what are these? Just as, verse 4, He chose us. Who's the He? Father, Son, or Spirit? It's the Father, isn't it? Just as the Father chose us in Him, who's the Him? In Christ, in the Son, just as He chose us, the Father chose us in His Son before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
I mean, part, part of the, uh, uh, the challenge of this and, and, and the excitement of it is figuring out the pronouns, to be honest with you. Uh, who, who is this him, you know, at this particular point? Well, in my judgment, holy and blameless before him, the Father. That is, the whole point of this is for the Father who elects us to be holy and blameless so that in His presence we are brought before the One before whom we cannot appear in our sin. So the Father in His love, as we'll see in the next verse, in His love for us, He elects us to be what we must be in order to appear before Him. Wow. What grace, what love. And, and here's where the love comes. In love, he predestined us. Who's the he, do you suppose? Who predestined us? The Father. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So he, he, he set up his own adoption agency. And he picked those people whom he said, you will be my son. And, and ladies, don't don't ever begrudge biblical statements that speak of all of us as sons of God. Sometimes it speaks of us as children of God, but most of the references speak to us, us, women and men, as sons. And here's why. Because the sons are the ones who have the inheritance in in, in Jewish culture. And so you are a son and you have all of the riches of Christ as a son. Women and men alike. And by the way, the same kind of gender problem happens for men in the Bible. Were men all part of, guess what? The bride of Christ. So, you know, we both have our problems with this, don't we? And they're both wonderful truths that we ought to embrace, not buck. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, again to the Father, to himself. He adopted us according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Who is the his? It's the Father of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, which I take it is a reference to the Son, in his loved one, the Son. In Him, now this has got to be Christ because of what follows. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. Clearly, that's the Son, isn't it? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. His grace. Who? Whose grace? I think it's the Father's. I heard that from some of you. And the reason is, is if you go back to verse 6 again, what did it say there? To the praise of the glory of His grace... Father's grace, which he bestowed on us in the beloved. So I believe verse eight is saying the, uh, verse seven is saying the same thing according to the riches of the Father's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He, the Father, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his, the Father's, kind intention, which he purposed in him. Who is the him at the end then? In Christ, which he purposed in Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Who do you suppose that is? Those pronouns. That's the Father, isn't it? So He... 
He ordains that we are receiving the inheritance in Christ. How does he secure it? He secures the fact that we'll receive this inheritance because he, the Father, works everything according to the counsel of his will, the will of the Father, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. I take it this, again, is the Father. Now, so far, we haven't seen much of the Spirit, have we? Just in verse 3, but now comes the Spirit. In Christ, verse 13, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory, which I take it again is the Father, all the way through this. Okay, now here's my main point in this. Isn't it clear if we are going to understand the Bible, the New Testament in particular, and if we're going to understand the rich teachings that we find in the New Testament, we have to read these New Testament texts with Trinitarian glasses. We have to think. We should not read over references to Father, Son. Instead, we ought to stop and linger and think, Hmm, why? Why does it mention Father? Why does it mention Son? Why Spirit in particular? Look look at parallel passages and think about how the members of the Trinity are discussed in these various themes that Scripture has to teach us. The Trinity, then, turns out to be one of the most central doctrines of the New Testament, and yet one that we give less thought to than we ought to as Christian people. All right, well, let's take a look then at the glory, beholding the glory of God's salvation and do this by looking at the the distinctive, as it were, work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we begin this then with, first of all, the glory of the Father in our salvation that I would summarize with with the word architect. The distinctive work of the Father is the work of the architect, the designer the one who planned and brought about this saving work. Well, consider some aspects of the design, the architectural plan of God the Father in salvation. First of all, it was designed in eternity past. The Father designed salvation in eternity past. Think, for example, of 1 Peter 1.20, where Peter writes that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but at these last times he has appeared for our sake, that through him we might become believers in God. Well, think of that phrase. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Hmm. Foreknown. Does that, does that mean that the Father looked ahead of time and he said, Ah, oh, look what I see out there. The Son is going to decide to come and save people. Boy, I'm really glad about that. Is, is, that, is that what it means for, for the Father to foreknow this? Absolutely not. It means that he foreordained to favor his Son. He, he, he had a prior disposition before the foundation of the world, a prior disposition to favor his Son, to be the one who would come and, yes, give his life a ransom for many, 
but then be raised from the dead, be given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Father had a prior disposition to favor His Son to be King of kings and Lord of lords. And now at this time, it has come about, says Peter. But the plan was designed before the foundation of the world. And just as Christ coming, as the one who would be Savior and Lord... Christ's coming was designed by the Father, so was our election. You remember Ephesians 1, 4, we just saw it. He chose us, the Father chose us in Christ, when? When did this take place? Before the foundation of the world. I mean, just imagine this, every one of you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, was known by God before He created anything. And he purposely designed for you, specifically you, to be in his son and be made holy like his son and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you to adoption. When did all of this plan take place? Before the foundation of the world. Romans 8.29 reinforces this. Whom he foreknew. Again, this foreknowledge is not looking ahead of time and seeing what's going to happen. This is not what the word means in scripture. It rather means for God to have a a prior disposition to favor. To forelove. Really, is much closer to the concept. To foreknow is to forelove. Whom he foreknew whom he had a prior disposition to favor, whom he foreloved, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God in his grace and love, before there was a world, before there was sin, before there was a need for a savior, chose us to be in Christ and experience the riches of all that he has for us. So the glory of the Father is seen in the design of salvation in eternity eternity past. Secondly, but the Father brings it about in history all through his Son. And so many passages indicate this. One of the most familiar, of course, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent... His only begotten Son. You know, the picture is not what we sometimes get, I don't think at this church or in in, in this group of churches, but in some of our churches, you get the picture that it's something like this. That the Father is the one who is really angry at sinners. And He is fed up and He is ready to do us in. And just at the last minute, the gracious, loving, kind Son comes along and He says, Wait, Father, don't do that. Don't destroy those sinners. I love them. I want to save them. So please, let me take their sin. And please express your wrath against me on their behalf. And so the Father agrees to the Son's plan to come and save us. This is so demeaning to the Father. It is so wrong to think of the Father and Son as if they are in competition to one another or have different perspectives on us. One being stern and cruel and the other loving and kind. No, it was the love of the Father. God so loved the world that He 
gave his only begotten son. First uh, John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Now catch the significance of the last part of this verse. He sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of his own wrath against us. That his son would be the propitiation of our sins. So God is satisfied in his wrath and justice against us because in his son, our sin is paid. This is the father's love for us. And without question, the most incredible statement in all of scripture, in my humble opinion, is in Isaiah 53 verse 10, where we read, that it pleased the father to crush his son. Now, I'm a dad. And I love my two girls that the Lord has given us. They're, they're just precious. J- Jody and I are so grateful as parents uh, for our girls. I mean, the thought of even just permitting one of my children to be crushed by another is, is repulsive to me repulsive, but to think of actively carrying it out, being the one who executes the judgment. Unbelievable. And this is exactly what the Father did. On our behalf, it pleased the Lord to crush Him. In answer to the question, why is Christ on that cross?, Of course, wicked men put him there. Of course, that's true. But isn't the main answer of the Bible, the Father gave his Son on our behalf. The Father is the one then who designed salvation in eternity past, brought it about in history, and then finally, number three, will receive ultimate glory for the salvation that is wrought by his Son. Philippians 2 that I mentioned a moment ago, verse 11 ends in a very significant way. It does speak of Jesus. Therefore, uh, he, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave to him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth. Can you imagine this is going to happen? The devil himself, Hitler, Stalin, every person who has ever lived... Every angel, every demon will bow the knee and confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, is there a period at the end of that verse? No. How does it go from there? To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, everything redounds to the glory of the Father. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Take a moment and turn there if you would, please. 1 Corinthians 15. This is a very significant statement of this point, but it's difficult, so it's easier if you can see it. He's speaking here, of course, of Christ's victory over death, the fact that he has abolished this great enemy of ours by rising from the dead. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy that will will be abolished is death. Now look at what he says. For 
Now, here's the pronouns again. He, who's the he? The Father, he has put all things in subjection under his feet. The Father has put all things in subjection under the Son's feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, the Father, is accepted, who put all things in subjection to him. Do you understand what that means? Because the Father is the one who put everything in subjection to the Son, the Father himself is not put in subjection to the Son. The Father is accepted. The Father is the only one, the only aspect of all of reality that is not put in subjection to the Son. When all things are subjected to Him, to Christ, verse 28, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who is this. The Father to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God the Father may be all in all. It is so clear that while Paul, on the one hand, celebrates the cross of Christ, celebrates Jesus, he wishes to know nothing of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. While Paul celebrates the centrality of Christ, that all that we have, all the blessings that we have are in Christ, it is also true that the same Paul, the same apostle, the same New Testament indicates that all of the praise that we give to Christ, the worship that we give to Christ, the adoration, the the love and devotion, the following and the obedience that we give to Christ is ultimately reflected then to the glory of the Father. Now, let me help you with this. You know, this is a difficult thing. In in worship, if if you're a thinking Christian, you may may struggle in terms of worship. Why is it that we then worship worship the Son if, in fact, ultimately all the glory goes to the Father? The Son Himself indicates this by putting Himself in submission to the Father. And here's why. Because the Son, you remember John 1.14? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. How does it go from there? Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son is excellent and worthy of praise. Because everything that is true of the Son is a reflection of the Father. Isn't this what Hebrews 1 tells us? He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And John 1 tells us this. Isn't, isn't this what, is we, what we read in Colossians uh, chapter 1, that, he, that the fullness of deity dwells in Him. And so the Son, by being the one who, who possesses in the, the fullness the essence of the Father, and reflects that to us, is Himself worthy of worship, and yet it is, the, it, it, it is the excellencies of the Father manifest in and through the Son. And so ultimate praise goes through the Son to the Father. Very much as our praying is done, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, because of the Son. Our hope is in the Son. He is our Savior. Lord, we follow the Son. But we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. So the Father then, the glory of the Father in salvation is seen in past, present, and future, is it not? Designed salvation in the past, brought it about in history, will receive ultimate glory for salvation in the future. What about the Son, the glory of the Son in our salvation? And the one word I would use to summarize His work in salvation is accomplishment. If the Father's 
If the Father is the architect, the Son is the one who accomplishes our salvation. And look here at three points as well. First of all, the Son obeys the Father in eternity past by choosing to carry out the Father's will in coming into the world. He obeys the Father in eternity past by choosing to carry out the Father's will in coming into the world. John 6.38, Jesus says this, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I don't think we appreciate the fact that in the Trinity, in, in the eternal Godhead, There is an authority-submission relationship among the members of the Trinity. And in eternity past, the Son obeyed the Father. Now, all of us can see in the New Testament many, many instances that Christ in the Incarnation, in the life that He lived here, the ministry that He conducted here, obeyed the Father. Over and over He spoke in that way, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the obedience of the Son to the Father doesn't begin in Bethlehem. It doesn't begin with the Incarnation. It begins in eternity past when the Father commissions the Son And he says to the Son, I favor you to be the one who will come and be suffering servant and risen Lord. You, my Son, are the one I choose. And the Son willingly obeys the Father. Yes, so his his salvation work begins in his obedience to the Father. Secondly, the Son comes to earth takes on our humanity and dies for our sin. He comes to earth, takes on our humanity and dies for our sin. Consider with me here a few elements that are involved in this. First of all is the incarnation itself. He becomes incarnate to be the God-man. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. So the Son comes as the, as the one who brings, as it were, the divine nature, joins it. With a human nature, the Word becomes flesh. And so in flesh and blood, we see the character of God lived out. The glory of the Father, full of grace and truth, lived out in His Son. It's an amazing thing. Now, why the God-man? I mentioned this to you earlier, and I said I would come back to it. Why? Why? My my daughter Rachel, a couple years ago, at uh, bedtime, we, we were talking... Theology, as we often do at that time of the day. Uh, she, she loves, in fact, both of my girls, we've spent time as they were growing up uh, at bedtime, you know, just take, taking those 15 minutes or so when they don't really want to go to sleep and capitalizing on it. I mean, boy, I t- so, so we, I, I just worked through theology with them from the time they were little. It was so fun to do. And, and uh, so Rachel, a couple years ago at bedtime, she asked me the question. She said, Daddy... Explain something to me. How come, why why is it that God did not, the Father did not, instead of sending His Son, 
Wow, you know, wow, how much he loves us. Instead of sending his son to be the substitute for us, why didn't he just create a second Adam? I mean, a a really human being, but independent of the Adam of Genesis uh, 2 and 3. And so he wasn't in Adam. He wasn't in his sin. A separate human Adam who was who was sinless and he would work in him in this second Adam so he would be sinless all of his life and of course uh, she, she thought God could do that and I agree with her because you know God God is is able to work in people in that way otherwise what hope do we have that heaven in heaven we will be sinless forever if it is not the case that God can work in our hearts so that we never sin right Heaven will be this way. Well, couldn't God have done this in this second Adam? So he would die then in our place, take our sin as a sinless substitute on our behalf. Why didn't he do that? I said, Rachel, that is such a good question. Now, now you've got to understand something. If all he was was a man, just like you and me, just, just a human being, well, that means that whatever payment I, a man should pay before a holy God, he, a man, and a man only, would have to pay before this same holy God. So if my sin is transferred to him, then he pays just like I would. Well, what would I pay if I paid for my own sin? Answer, eternal condemnation, eternal judgment. That The reason hell is eternal is because the payment for the sin, the offense against a holy God, is never satisfied that's the reason hell is eternal that's the reason the doctrine of purgatory is an affront to god's holiness and infinite worth we can't pay off the debt in time in purgatory in hell it doesn't work that way we go to hell we stay there forever why because the offense is never paid in full so here, here now is the second Adam who takes my sin, takes your sin, and pays on our behalf. And how long does he pay? Same as we would. He, he has to suffer eternal con- So when, when will it be the case that our sin is paid? So sin is defeated. The, the, the penalty for sin is paid in full. We are forgiven and set free. When will that day be? And the answer is never. It'll never happen. So God couldn't raise up just merely a second sinless Adam. He had to have a sinless Adam, a sinless man, which he did by the virgin birth. So he he doesn't inherit the sin of Adam. By the virgin birth, he, he has a man, a human being, who doesn't inherit the sin of Adam, but he has also to be the son of God. He has to be God and man joined together. So the payment made by the person of Jesus Christ is the payment made of a human to substitute for us and of God whose value is infinite. And so instead of paying for eternity, his payment can be done and finished. And so he rises from the dead as demonstration Sin is defeated, the payment has been made, and so he rises victorious as that testimony. Amen. So, the God-man, 
The God-man, Jesus Christ, is absolutely essential to his saving work. But then, secondly, small letter B, he accepts the limitations of our humanity. Though he is God, he really does become one of us. He really does experience in his day-to-day life what we experience as human beings. He really does experience thirst, hunger, tiredness. He really does experience limitation of understanding. You remember the, 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 the uh, incident that's recorded in Mark 13, 32, if you want to look at it, where the disciples asked Jesus about the, about the second coming of Christ. And he said, concerning the hour of the second coming, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son of Man, only the Father knows. Now, have you ever wondered about this? It's actually a verse that Arius who was an advocate in the early church that Jesus was not God. They, they had the, the, you know, the Nicene Council met over the, over the question of Arianism. Arius used that verse to support his contention that Jesus was not God. And the argument was very simple. God knows everything. Jesus doesn't know everything. Ergo, Jesus is not God. Well, Jesus says he doesn't know the hour of the second coming. How do you count for this? How do you put Mark 13.32 alongside John 8.58? John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, John 10.30, and so many other passages. How do you put these together? Well, here's what I submit to you, that it, it is in what is called the kenosis. That word simply comes from the Greek word used in Philippians 2.6, that he emptied himself. He emptied himself when he took on our humanity. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul says, who although he existed in the form of God, the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be clutched onto, but poured himself out, emptied himself. The word ekenosin in Greek simply means to pour out, like pouring water out of a pitcher. He poured himself out. Now, the key to this passage, in my judgment, comes in the participle that follows. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He emptied by adding. He subtracted... By addition. This is strange math, isn't it? Strange math. How, how, do you subtra- how, how do you empty by adding? How, how do you subtract by adding? Let me give you an example, an illustration, and then I'll come back to Christ. <clears throat> this is an illustration of how you can detract from something, how you, can, how you can lessen something by adding to it. Suppose, you're going to like this illustration because if you like cars, uh, suppose you went onto the, uh, the dealership of a, a, a new car lot. Let, let's make it a BMW dealership, just for fun. That's one of my favorite kinds of cars. I'll never own one. I don't want one, but I, I like them. <clears throat> I'd love to drive one sometime. You know, it'd be fun. Well, see, you go to a, a BMW dealership, and you take off the showroom floor a 2004 beautiful car. I mean, just shiny, gorgeous, hot number. And uh, the, the de- dealer's crazy enough to give you the keys to do it. And you take this out for a test drive. Well, now, here's the thing. For about a week previously, it has been raining buckets out there. And you decide to take this brand new polished, shiny, gorgeous BMW out on the back roads in the mud. And you drive this thing like crazy. You know, you're spinning that wheel and and those tires are kicking up mud. And you bring this back an hour later, park it on the showroom floor, covered with mud. 
And the, and, and the car dealer comes out screaming, pulling his hair, going, what have you done to my car? And you say, I haven't taken anything away from it. I've just added to it. I won't even charge you for the mud. Now, do you get the point? That The luster of that car, its glory. How about that word? Its glory is still there. But it is veiled. It, it is concealed by the mud. You can't see it. Because the mud keeps it from shining forth. Now, here's what I understand the, the kenosis to be. When Christ took on, when the Son of God, the eternal Son of the Father, took on human flesh, it required of Him, boy, the line here between orthodoxy and heresy is a fine one. It required of the Son of God that He not discard divine attributes, not give up attributes of his deity, but rather that he willingly relinquish the rightful use. He willingly relinquished the rightful use of certain attributes so that he could experience life as we do, as human beings. And so, you know, when he grew up as a baby... And, 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 and into, into youth and then adulthood, he had to learn as he grew. You remember in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, it speaks of Christ in two verses, verse 40 and 52. It speaks of Christ as growing in wisdom and knowledge and in favor of God, of God in favor with God and men. He grew in wisdom. He had to learn Torah as he grew up. Honestly, I think Jesus Christ, as a boy, as he grew up, was the epitome of the Psalm 1 individual. He loved the law of the Lord. He meditated on it day and night. He, he absorbed what the scriptures taught. And so by the age of 12 years old, he marveled the teachers of the law in Jerusalem when he went down there with his parents. Don't trivialize that passage by saying, well, of course he marveled them. He was God. No, he, he was God. Yes, he was. But this is not why he marveled them. Because as a man, he submitted himself to, to the teaching uh, of his elders and studied the scriptures and learned them and so grew in knowledge, grew in wisdom through his lifetime. So he really did accept then the limitations we experience. One more point on this that is just so crucial. Can, can you see that if this is not the case, then a passage like 1 Peter 2, 21 and following it's very difficult for us to comprehend. P Peter says there, to follow in his steps, referring to Christ, follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return, and so on. How in the world are we to take this seriously? Follow in his steps, who committed no sin, if in fact the reason he committed so, no sin, the reason he obeyed the Father, the reason he was faithful to the end is because he's God. And we're not. But the way he did it was as a man who by the power of the Spirit... We'll look at that next. The power of the Spirit, through the Word of God, lived His life in obedience to the end. Marvel 
at this Jesus who loved his father, loved the ways of the Lord and followed obediently every step of the way. Which brings up the next point. He accepted our limitations, but then point small letter C, he lived his life and accomplished the father's will in the power of the spirit, in the power of the spirit. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did Jesus need the spirit? Isn't that a good question to ask? I mean, in Luke 4, for example, several times in Luke chapter 4, it speaks of Jesus being filled with the Spirit. Full of the Spirit, he went into the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After the temptation took place and Jesus resisted all three of those temptations, then it says that Jesus went back into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then we read, now catch the significance of this. Jesus goes into Nazareth. This is in Luke 4. He goes into Nazareth, goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. They hand him the Torah scroll, scroll, the, 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 the Old Testament scroll to read, the scroll of Isaiah. He opens up to where it is written, Isaiah 61. And what does he read? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, handed it back to the attendant. The eyes of all were fixed upon him. And he said the most incredible thing you can imagine. He said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now what's his point? I am the spirit-anointed Messiah. Okay, now I submit to you, there is something about the fact that Jesus has the Spirit that is significant. Don't you think? I I mean, doesn't everything in that text indicate it's important that Jesus has the Spirit? Now here's my question for you. What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of the Son? Answer? Nothing. What can infinity add to infinity? I mean, you you cannot add to the deity of the Son. So why the Spirit? To empower the human Jesus, to obey the Father, to live as one of us, to go to the cross so that, yes, He would be the substitute, but He would also live the prototype life we are called to live. He lives the life we live by the Spirit. It's an incredible thing. So Jesus then is empowered by the Spirit. And one more point on this. He submits to the Spirit. Now this is significant in light of what's coming. That that Jesus actually is the one who has authority over the Spirit. We'll see that in a moment. The Spirit is to glorify the Son. But in the incarnation... The human Jesus, he submits to the Spirit and and follows the leading of the Spirit as the Spirit prompts him to. He lived his life and accomplished the Father's will and the power of the Spirit. Now, small letter D, the last point here, he endured our sin and God's wrath for our eternal salvation. He endured our sin and God's wrath for our eternal salvation. Just two verses here, two passages to think of. 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul says that God made Christ, the Father made His Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
Let me give you a little assignment to do sometime. Just meditate. Now, don't do this for too long because it'll be, it'll be too depressing to you. Meditate for a period of time, maybe a half hour, maybe 45 minutes. Meditate on the horror of sin. Just bring to mind example after example after example that you can think of, of how ugly and cruel and mean and hurtful and devastating and horrid sin is. Think, think of, of how it, uh, it ruins lives. It, it, it just shames people. It hurts people. It is so ugly, so horrible. Think just of the sin in your life. Think hard about the ugliness of the sin in your own life. Now, think about that and now just magnify and realize that the Father put upon His Son sin. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin. The whole of it. All of the sin of all of humanity in taken together, put upon the Son. It is incredible. The, the, the torture, the pain that would be involved in the Son accepting to Himself sin is unthinkable, unbelievable. But He did it. And not only that, then He endures for that sin the wrath of His Father, that if we paid it, remember our discussion a few moments ago, that if we paid it, how long would each one of us here have to pay for our individual sin? All of eternity, we would never finish paying it. And He takes upon Himself all of that sin, all of us in this room, all of those for whom He died, He brings all of that sin in on Himself and the wrath of God that we would require us eternal payment is taken by Him in full. What a Savior. What an amazing offering that He made on our behalf. He endured our sin and God's wrath for our salvation. Third, He obeyed the Father in eternity past. He came to earth, accomplished this work. And then third, he completes his saving work through his spirit and reigns triumphant over all. He completes his saving work through his spirit. Now, this is interesting. First, small letter A here, he sends the spirit to extend the benefits of his saving death to his own people, to to those whom he has saved and will bring into glory forever. He sends the Spirit to accomplish this. In John 16, in fact, look there if you would please. In John 16, Jesus says one of the most amazing things you can imagine. You remember, the disciples had just learned about one year earlier, you know, roughly two years into Jesus' ministry, learned his identity. They didn't know it at first. Caesarea Philippi. Do you remember this in Matthew 16 where Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Oh, they say you're one of the prophets, Elijah. And, and then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, how? Do you remember? Thou art the Son, the, the, thou, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
and, and of course, Jesus responded to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. So, so here at this point, this was about one year earlier, the disciples are made aware by divine revelation that Jesus, in fact, is the long-awaited Messiah. They have waited for this day. They are so glad this day has come. And now Jesus tells them, look with me in John 16, verse 5. John 16, verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? In other words, Jesus had just told them, I'm leaving. I'm going back to the Father. And it's, it's not as though if Bob were to come up to me and, and say to me, you know, I, my family's going to go on vacation. And I said, oh, where are you going, Bob? Grand Canyon? Are you going to Florida? I mean, you, you know, it, you, you don't just carry on a north. So they didn't say to Jesus, oh, is that right? Oh, what are you, when are you leaving? Why, why aren't they responding normally? Verse 5. Verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They, they are astonished. They are grieved at what he is saying. Now look at what he says next. But I tell you the truth. Verse 7. It is to your advantage. That I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. So can you believe it? Jesus says, this is your, this is to your advantage. This is for your blessing, for your joy that I'm leaving. Because when I go, I will send the Spirit. What could be better than having Jesus walking by your side. The Spirit of Jesus living in your life. That's what's better. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, I'm going to send Him to you. And He will be in you. The one who has been with you will be in you. The Spirit who has been on Jesus now is on us. As he sends the Spirit. Acts 2.38, this is exactly what Peter says in his sermon. He speaks of Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, having received from the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice the authority submission that's indicated in this verse. Jesus, he's at the right hand of the Father, having received from the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit, now sends forth this which you both see and hear on the day of Pentecost. So the Spirit comes to us from the Father through the Son, and the Spirit is given to us for our good growth and sanctification. B, he culminates salvation in cosmic reconciliation, bringing all things into subjection under his feet. We've looked already at 1 Corinthians 15. Colossians 1 makes a very similar point. That is, all of creation ultimately will be brought under the feet of Christ. The curse will be over. There will be nothing that stands in opposition to God because of Christ and His reconciling work. That does not mean, as some have held, that all will be saved. This this does not teach universalism. But what it means is the battle is over. Those who are in hell know God is God. They know they are defeated. They know that they stand accountable to Him for eternity. 
Reconciliation takes place. And then finally, small letter C, Christ reigns victorious as King of kings and Lord of lords. You remember when he returns in Revelation 19, he has that name written upon him, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we heard in, our, in, in the reading earlier this evening from Revelation 21 that he sits upon the throne, the Alpha and the Omega, reigning forever in heaven. We with him, reigning with Christ. Christ forever. What a great salvation is accomplished by the Son. Now, let's move on to the Spirit as we bring this to a close. The glory of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And the one word I would use to summarize this is application. The Father, the architect. The Son, the one who accomplishes salvation. And the Spirit, the application of that to our lives. But the Spirit's work actually begins, first of all, with empowering the Son to obey the Father and fulfill His assigned work. That's the first thing the the Spirit does in salvation is empower the Son to carry out the work that He does. We've talked about that, so I'll move on to the second point. Secondly, then, He not only empowers the Son, but then He comes to glorify the Son. This is such an important understanding from John 16, where Jesus said to his disciples, I have many more things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, why why is that? Because they didn't have the spirit yet. They they couldn't comprehend these things because they hadn't, they didn't have the spirit. I have many more things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit comes, he will guide you unto all truth, for he will take of mine, Jesus says, and he will disclose it to you. He will glorify me, says Jesus. He will glorify me. One of the hallmarks of a spirit-anointed person, spirit-empowered church, is there is much made of Christ. Isn't that the truth? Because what does the spirit want to do? Does the spirit want to show off the spirit? Hey, look at me, I'm the spirit. Shine the spotlight on me. Uh Uh-uh. The Spirit is interested in glorifying the Son, making the Son radiant, showing off the work of the Son, extolling the character of the Son. The Spirit comes to glorify Jesus. Uh, Secondly, I'm sorry, how does the Spirit glorify Jesus? Christ. Three elements to this. First of all, he empowers bold witness of the gospel of Christ. He empowers bold witness of the gospel of Christ. Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for, for what the Father had promised, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, catch, catch the significance here, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, the book of Acts is really designed to explain how the gospel penetrated Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So the Spirit comes to embolden us to share the gospel of Jesus. You know, I think it's one of the most liberating things, liberating single notions for evangelism is to realize that effective evangelism requires words spoken that are truth, that are spirit-empowered. The spirit is the one who takes those words. So as Jesus said in, in John 15, you, you, will, you will bear witness of me and the spirit will bear witness of me. Now, how does this happen? 
Well, the Spirit bears witness as we simply speak the truth of the gospel. It goes with spirit empowerment. We don't have to manufacture it. We can't manufacture it. We we can't make anything happen. It is the Spirit who works through the Word and brings about the results He chooses. The results are in His hands. But He empowers bold witness of the gospel. Secondly, He empowers repentance and saving faith in Christ. As the gospel goes forth, how do these people believe? How do people have eyes that are opened? How do how are cold, hard, dead hearts revived? Regeneration. How does this happen? By the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who awakens dead hearts, who opens blind eyes, so people see the glory of Christ and come to Him. And third, He empowers character transformation into the likeness of Christ. He empowers character transformation into the likeness of Christ. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, We are transformed from glory to glory. I take that it means in increasing measures of glory or increasing degrees of Christ's likeness. We are transformed from glory to glory, and this is from the Lord, the Spirit. So what does the Spirit do? He rivets our attention on Jesus. We behold Jesus, and we are transformed. You know, in the end, this is how we will be glorified. Do you remember 1 John 3, 2? When we see him, see who? Christ, when he appears. When we see him, we will be like him. Now, don't, don't, don't miss the next word. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. We come to Christ because we see Christ. Our eyes are open. We grow in Christ because the Spirit directs our attention to Christ. We see His character. We marvel at, at, his, at his grace and kindness, His obedience, His faithfulness, His determination to do the will of the Father, His compassion for sinners. We admire Christ. We're made like Him. And then in the end, we will see Him. And just like that... We will be transformed completely into his likeness by beholding Christ. The Spirit works then to empower our transformation into the likeness of Christ. Okay, finally now, lessons that we can take from the glory of God's salvation as we bring this to a close. We've seen the Father, the work of the Father as the architect. The work of the Son as the one who accomplishes salvation. The work of the Spirit as the one who applies salvation. excuse me, that salvation into our lives. What can we learn about this? Let me give you five things to conclude with. First of all, marvel at the wisdom and intricacy of salvation. Marvel at the wisdom and intricacy of salvation. Think of it. It requires all three persons of the Trinity working in their respective roles, accomplishing precisely what each needs to do in order, just right, in order to bring this about. No wonder Paul celebrates the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1 as the wisdom of God and the power of God manifest. There is no greater display of the character of God than is displayed in the salvation of sinners. Creation, as glorious as it is, pales in comparison to the cross. 
in comparison to what God has designed and carried out for us through His Son in the power of the Spirit. Marvel at the wisdom and the intricacy of salvation. Secondly, marvel at the evident authority and submission in the Godhead. Now, there's much more about this. That I, I'm actually writing a book right now on the Trinity that is largely on this particular area of the authority and submission, the roles and relationships of the triune members. And, and it, it is a rich, rich study. But, but just a little glimpse here. Marvel at the fact that the Son does not begrudge the fact that He is under the authority of the Father, but submits Gladly. Marvel at the fact the Spirit, who's third on the list, at least the Son's over the Spirit. But here's the Spirit, who is third on the list. Notice, you know, you, you, you read in the history of doctrine, until the 20th century, there is only one volume, that is a single volume devoted to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the entirety of church history. Written, of course, by John Owen, who wrote on everything, you know. So, of course, he included a volume on this that nobody else had written on. One volume in, up until the year 1900 on the, on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Marvel at the fact the Holy Spirit isn't bothered by this. Hey, where's my book? You know, Doctrine of God. Okay, John Frame. How about, you know, so... Marvel at the fact that in the Godhead there is this authority and submission relationship. So, it is just as God-like to submit gladly, supportingly to rightful authority as it is God-like to exercise rightful, wise, judicious, loving authority. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it it clear to you then why we hate authority as sinful human beings? Because we don't like God. We don't like the way God is. This is why the egalitarian movement in in our evangelical circles that wants to deny the fact that there is male headship in the church and in the home, this is why this movement is is so hurtful. Uh, both to individual people and to the cause of, of understanding who God is and how we are to relate to Him. Because in God, there is authority and submission combined. Rightful authority, loving, kind, gracious, wise authority, and glad-hearted, joyful, supportive, cheering them on. Submission. In the Godhead, marvel at the evident authority and submission in the Godhead. Third, marvel at the Father. Marvel at the Father, who though He is supreme in the Trinity, shines the spotlight on His Son. Isn't it amazing? We read the text. We see where He will receive in the end all the glory. To the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.11. We've seen this text, and, and yet, what is He interested in when Jesus comes? For example, to to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, he says to them, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him, he says. And also, Hebrews 1, 6 states that when He, the Father, brings the firstborn into the world, He commands the angels, worship Him. 
Worship the Son. Isn't it amazing? The Father gets top billing, but what does He do? He says, hey, I want you to see my Son. Wow, I am so proud of Him. I I am so pleased with my Son. Look at Him. Follow Him. Be like Him, my Son. Marvel forth at the Spirit. At the Spirit, who although He is third in rank in the Trinity submits gladly to his calling to empower the Son and then to glorify the Son. There has never yet been a worship service conducted in the history of the church where the, where the focus is upon Jesus and the Spirit in the background is craving attention and, and begrudging the fact that he's not on center stage. It has never happened. He is always happy, delighted, thrilled when Jesus is set front and center. Marvel at the Spirit who loves to glorify the Son. Finally, fifth, marvel at the Son who obeyed His Father with the most difficult task imaginable in going to the cross. He condescended to take on our flesh. He submitted to the Spirit. He endured the folly of men. He endured the wrath of God, all to win our salvation and to reconcile us to His Father. Do you realize what He did in this? He, the only Son of the Father, did the work required to make us all sons of the Father. He did the work required that his inheritance, that was his alone, now be shared with all of us. How gracious, how loving, how kind, how lavish is his mercy and grace to us. Praise be to Jesus who gave himself for us in the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father. Love him, trust him, be made like him, adore him. And worship Him. In conclusion, the glory of God's salvation is the glory of the Father and of the Spirit who, in ways unique to each of them, focus attention on the Son. The glory of salvation then focuses on the life, the ministry, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the consummation of the Son who is the only Savior and the only Lord over all. He is full of grace, full of truth, and full of glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Join me in prayer as we conclude. Father, we do come before you, and yes, we do pray to you, our Father. We come in the name of Jesus. He is the mediator, the the one you have chosen to represent us, to die in our place, and the one who sits at your right hand, and the one in whose name we rightly come before you by faith in him. And Father, we praise you for this salvation, for designing it. What an incredible, wise design you put together in eternity past. We praise you for commissioning your Son to carry out this work. And we praise Jesus for accomplishing it perfectly and for bringing to us the end of our sin. Full atonement has been made. 
We're released from its penalty. Its power is broken. And we look forward to the day when we are raised and are with him forever. And we thank you, Lord God, our Father, for sending through your Son the Spirit, the Spirit who lives in us, the Spirit who who empowers us and works in us, that we can share the gospel, that we can come to faith in Christ, that we can be made like Jesus. We pray, Father, for you to release the power of your Spirit that would make us more like Jesus. To his glory, we pray that you would do this. So thank you, Father, for this rich salvation that is ours by your design and by your manifold grace. We give you all the praise in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Bruce Ware, which was given at the 2004 Worship God Conference. It has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planning and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.